Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 10th edition of the Rambling Brews podcast, hosted by yours truly. I go by the name Tim, and man, my skates are sharpened, the ice is cut, and I'm ready for the puck to drop on this episode. We've got a lot to cover in the world of sports and entertainment this week. We'll discuss one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time, from my alma mater, the West Virginia Mountaineers, Bobby Huggins, who currently sits at 899 wins and is looking to become the sixth Division I coach to reach that milestone, the 900-win mark. What a remarkable feat that'll be. Uh, we'll also dive into the NHL, discuss some suspensions, some milestones reached, um, certain statistics, and the current standings as of today. And as you're listening to this, it has officially been 16,725 days since the Philadelphia Flyers last won a Stanley Cup, so all is right in the world with me. All I need is an ice-cold beer. But before I do that, I know I mentioned I was going to space these reviews out. Um, I know I mentioned you know, I, I didn't want to do it every week. I didn't want it to be you know, played out, but it has been two weeks. And I do have a bunch of different beers to try um, that have been requested by the listeners. So I'm going to try right now a Janet's Brown Ale. Um, this ale is brewed by the Hop Farm Brewing Company here in Pittsburgh. Um, it was delivered courtesy of my brother-in-law, Bobby. So shout out to Bobby. Um, he's dropped a couple beers off for these reviews, so I appreciate the hell out of that. Uh, the can here actually says that it's uh, a medium-high aroma and a medium-high bitterness. Um, so it says that right on the can. So right off the bat, right off the rip, I'm not, I'm not thrilled. Um, I usually don't want to have to you know, take my, my beer down like cough medicine if it's so bitter. But if that's what they're saying, it's medium high. It's probably like off the Richter scale on my scale um, in terms of bitterness. But um, it also says it's seven and a half percent alcohol per pint. Uh, yeah, I got a pint here. Um, so that's pretty high. Damn. Um, and on the can, it, it says it's a tribute to Mike Tasty McDole. Um, so I understand he passed away, unfortunately. So rest in peace to Mike McDole. Um, they've got a little drawing here on the side. I assume it's him um, on the side of the can here, so that's pretty cool. Um, most importantly, a portion of the proceeds uh, from these sales of these beers is donated uh, to uh, the Mario Lemieux Foundation in Mike's honor. So that's admirable. Um, stick taps to the Hop Farm Brewing Company for that. Um, that's pretty awesome. But I'm still going to be honest with this review. Um, for the Rambling Brews podcast and the Morel Meter, I have to maintain a level of integrity um, I'll try not to let it influence me. Like I said, it's an awesome thing what they've done. Uh, they're donating to the Mario Lemieux Foundation um, on behalf of their their friend uh, Mike McDowell here. But you know, without further ado, I'm gonna crack this uh, Janet's Brown Ale and give it a score. Oh yeah, yeah, they weren't kidding. It's bitter. Let me smell it too for that medium high aroma. It actually has a pretty decent smell to it. Now, typically, if I was at a place you know that had these types of beers, I would look for the ale, the brown ale. I always see that as like kind of the closest thing for me um, to like a Yingling or something like that. I might be way off, but that's what how my mind works. But let me take another sip of this real quick. Man, just not in my realm of enjoyment here at all. Um, not the best beer. I certainly would never buy this beer. Um, now, granted, some people that actually like that bitterness, that's kind of what's the draw for IPAs, right? 
is people like that bitterness and that back end horrible taste. I don't know why, but that's that's what they're shooting for. So they definitely hit the ball out of the park with that on this one. Um, as far as my score, I'm going to go with a yeah, one more sip. Yeah, I got I got to go 2.2 out of five stars. And that might be a little bit high, you know, a, a little bit, uh, a little bit high, but I'll give it to them for how charitable they are um, on behalf of their friend that passed away, unfortunately. So again, that's the score. Uh, Janet's Brown Ale from the Hop Farm Brewing Company here in Pittsburgh. I don't mean to bury them, but just not my cup of tea, as probably everybody that listens to this podcast uh, would have suspected. Um, but I, I actually learned something too from the last time I did this. I've got a Coors Light here um, to help me uh, cleanse the palate before I get this podcast started. So allow me. Now we're talking. Well, well, well. Isn't it ironic? What's what's that song from the 90s? Is it, um? oh, it, it's Alanis Morissette, I think. Whatever happened to her? I'd love to know that. But she had some bangers. Um, but isn't it ironic? That's exactly how I felt. Um, this past week, whenever last week I had that soliloquy around Tom Wilson and how he's a complete scumbag, Bush league, piece of shit, asshole player. And maybe that's too harsh. Um, I've heard from some people that maybe I was a little bit too harsh on Wilson, but I felt like all my criticism was warranted. I never said I wouldn't want him on our team uh, or on my team. Um, I would, I'd love to see him in black and gold. You know, I'd probably cheer for him. I'm not saying I'd buy a sweater, but I'd, uh, I'd probably cheer for him, but it was so ironic to me that the very next night after that last episode dropped, Tom Wilson had another absurd hit to the head of Brandon Carlo, the defenseman for the Boston Bruins, a totally unnecessary hit, which actually sent Carlo to the hospital for evaluation um, right away. So he left the ice and went straight to the hospital, stayed there overnight. Um, thankfully, I've read he's okay. He's out of the hospital. But right away, as you could imagine, Twitter and social media blew up. It was on fire. There was all kinds of different people from different sides, right? There was people saying, that's garbage, that's Bush League, he needs a 30-game suspension. There's Washington Capitals fans saying, hey, this guy, you know, if you had him on your team, you'd be fine with him. They're only targeting him and only giving him penalties and trying to suspend him because of, you know, he's Tom Wilson and he plays hard, blah, 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 blah. And then there was hockey purists and people saying, you know, this is a big man's game, it's a hockey game, blah, 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 blah. We should be, you know, hitting, it's old-time hockey, yada, 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 all this bullshit. So it was crazy. He's a very polarizing guy. Um, it was electric as hell, um, and I was so happy to, to to have been watching it and just following along on Twitter. I was uh, texting with some of my buddies um, in the group chat. Some of them are Capitals fans. Most of us are Penguins fans, and my brother-in-law as well. He's a Capitals fan, so um, it was interesting to get their side of things and get my side of things um, on what I saw from, I guess, I don't want to say unbiased because I'm, I'm not a big fan of the guy, but I didn't have any dog in the fight um, in terms of the Bruins or the uh, Washington Capitals in that sense, so I was trying to look at it through an objective lens. And I thought it was a just a garbage hit. Um, I thought it was totally unnecessary. So for those who didn't see the play, um, Brandon Carlo and Jacob Vrana, Vrana, a left winger for the Washington Capitals, he chipped the puck in, and they're kind of going one-on-one battle in the corner there. Um, and Tom Wilson is in the high slot, so he's in between the two face-off circles in the offensive zone. He goes off of his angle to kind of engage with Carlo, who's already engaged with Vrana. They're battling for the puck, and the puck's in uh, Brandon Carlo's skates. So, um, Carlos, like kind of, it's out of the, it's out of his vision. He can't really see Wilson coming, which is typical for Wilson as I've talked about. So he comes in 
and he he doesn't charge, so he doesn't take any strides, so it's not a charging penalty. Um, but he basically just comes in and puts his hands up to his own chest and kind of jumps a little bit and extends himself into Brandon Carlo, grazes his shoulder a little bit. I know a lot of people were arguing that was the main point of contact, but he basically grazed his shoulder and then his uh, his fists and his whole body weight just slammed Brandon Carlo's head straight into the glass. Um, and a completely avoidable hit. Uh, did not necessarily have to do that. Could have laid the body, could have hit him, had plenty of time to to slow up. Uh, plenty of time to adjust his route, make a body check, or make a play on the puck. Um, and I was just waiting for it. I was waiting for the NHL player safety Twitter account to tweet out that Tom uh, Wilson had a hearing. So for those who don't know about that, um, they'll tweet out the NHL player safety whenever they have a, um, a play that they need to review or a possible suspension. They tweet out that a player will have a hearing with the uh, Department of Player Safety. Now, I'm not sure it's a good thing for the NHL that a goon, George uh, Peros, who was an absolute goon. He just fought everybody. He wasn't much of a hockey player, is the head of player safety in the NHL. Um, so that kind of goes to show you a little bit of, about the criticism that the NHL gets from being a bunch of dinosaurs that, you know, just don't really understand um, injuries and, and, and plays like that that need to be taken out of the game. Um, but they tweeted out late um, that night, late Friday night, that Tom Wilson would be having a hearing. Um, an in-person hearing. Now, granted, these are over Zoom due to COVID, but that's a significant detail because in regular time without COVID, an in-person hearing allows the NHL to um, to suspend a player for five games or more, at least five games. They don't have to. They can suspend them for two. They cannot suspend them at all. But it allows them the ability, per the NHL Players um, Association and the collective bargaining agreement, it allows them the ability to suspend for more than five games. If you get a verbal hearing or like a hearing just over the phone um, in, in normal circumstances, then it's less than five games. And typically it's either one or two games or, or more than likely a fine. But in this case, the NHL player safety came out and they said uh, Tom Wilson will be having an in-person Zoom hearing um, the, you know, coming up over the weekend. So this happened on a Friday night. So that right away, you know, okay, he's probably getting at least five based on his reputation. I've been over that. Um, but ultimately they had the hearing, um, and the NHL department of player safety put out a, a tweet and I usually put out a real dramatic video, um, it, like where they're explaining the decision. Um, and in this video for Tom Wilson, um, uh, they mentioned that Tom Wilson delivered a high, hard hit. Uh, that drove Brandon Carlo violently into the glass, causing injury, um, which is a violation of Rule 41.1 in the NHL rulebook, which is boarding. So um, to fill people in, the boarding penalty, uh, it states that a boarding penalty should be called or should be imposed on any player who checks or pushes a defenseless opponent in such a manner that causes the opponent to hit or impact the boards violently or dangerously. So the NHL basically came out in this video as well and acknowledged that the Capitals had a, a legitimate argument uh, because the Capitals said that it's common for NHL players to deliver um, hits to unsuspecting and vulnerable opponents. Um, but what they said was this this hit is suspendable because it's a direct and significant contact to the head of Brandon Carlo. Um, and then this quote was crazy from the video. Like They usually don't go this hard at a player, but they said um, in the video that Tom Wilson is a player with a substantial disciplinary record. He's been suspended four times, as we outlined last week, as I did, and he's been fined twice. 
And he's this in this instance, he's taking advantage of an opponent who is in a defenseless position and doing so with significant force. So for that reason, and the reason that, that they talked about with him violating the boarding penalty rule, um, and mind you, this wasn't even called in the game. This The referees on the ice didn't even call a penalty, so I don't know what in the fuck they were looking at. But this is as blatant of a penalty as there is. And to me, this is one of the, the more egregious hits that he's had because it was so avoidable. Like some of them in the past, yeah, they were dirty hits, but everything's happening at full speed. And, you know, maybe you give him the benefit of the doubt because, you know, it's it's just happening so fast and he got his high, he got his elbow up or he got his stick up high or whatever the case is. But this play, he, he traveled such a distance and he had a perfect opportunity to either play the puck, like I said, or throw the body. Um, and he chose to just drive his forearms and his whole body through Brandon Carlo's head into the glass, causing injury. Um, but for that reason, the NHL Players Safety uh, Department announced that Tom Wilson would serve a seven-game suspension. Um, so my reaction to this is I was I, I was I was pleased, but I thought it should have been more because, like I said last episode, his last suspension was a twenty-gamer for something very similar, and and I thought this hit was worse just because it was so avoidable. Um, but like it's it's crazy because I was thinking about like okay, what if it was what if he would have hit uh, Connor McDavid or he would have hit Austin Matthews or Sidney Crosby or somebody like that, somebody of a stature in the league. Not to knock Brandon Carlo, but he's not exactly a superstar. He's an up-and-coming young defenseman with a very bright future for the Boston Bruins. But if it's a player, like an upper echelon player, I mean, how does that impact it? Because there's not one person on this planet that has a, a an ounce of a brain cell that pays their money to go see Tom Wilson play. They, they want to go see Ovechkin on that team, or they want to go see you know Backstrom, or they want to go see Crosby, Malkin, Matthews, Tavares, Marner, McDavid, Dreisaitl, um, Patrick Kane, those types of players. Nobody's paying any hard-earned money to go watch Tom Wilson play. So I, I just don't understand that whole philosophy of why the NHL, and I went over this before, but why the NHL feels it necessary to not protect its stars and to protect these goon jabronis that just run around. And it's not just Tom Wilson. There's been pl- plenty of players, and some of them have played for the Penguins. And I know, I admit it, I, I've cheered for him. I've cheered for Matt Cook. Um, he was a scumbag player. I've cheered for a lot of guys. George LaRock played for the Pittsburgh Penguins, and he couldn't play an ounce of hockey. Um, so it's just a, it's just a whole crazy situation. Um, for this seven game suspension, Tom Wilson, he will forfeit $312,000. So to me, it's like, okay, how in the hell was that worth it? A hit that really had no significance on the play. It wasn't going to do anything for the, the, um, Washington capitals other than cause a stir and, you know, cause him to have to fight and all this other stuff that happened afterwards that we'll get into in a second. So I hope it was worth it to Tom Wilson to drop 314k or 312k. Sorry, and I think he um, actually now in his career he's he's uh, been fined or been suspended and lost over one million dollars of salary. So just looking back on that, it just seems like a completely ridiculous idea to do that um, and to think that's a good idea. But uh, reaction around the league was pretty crazy. I mean, most people were pissed off because they they say that uh, Tom Wilson typically plays the victim. Um, he always comes out and says, hey, you know, I didn't mean to do it. Uh, I, you know, I just caught up in the moment or, you know, unfortunate play. I hope he's OK, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I used to give him the benefit of the doubt early on, but this is his fifth time being suspended and he's been fined twice for similar hits and he's gotten away with plenty of gutless other plays as we've been over. Um, so you don't get the benefit of the doubt anymore from me. Um, Brad Marchand was pissed. They interviewed him right after the play in the um, between periods, and he was saying it was a joke of a hit, just a complete bullshit move. And he he dropped a couple uh, expletives on TV, and 
Um, so, and I agreed with him. And Bruce Cassidy, the head coach of the uh, Boston Bruins, was livid. He was so mad, and I don't think anybody was more mad than Jack Edwards, who's the play-by-play announcer for the Boston Bruins. Um, this guy is usually just a complete idiot. I can't stand him. He's usually ranked dead last um, in terms of the announcer rankings in the NHL, and he's probably dead last in terms of announcer rankings in all the sports. Um, he's a complete asshole. Um, so, but anyway, he was going crazy. He was saying like, oh, Tom Wilson, blah, 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 and running his mouth. And right after um, that hit, shortly after Tom Wilson fought, um, and he went in the box. Um, it was a pretty even fight. I saw Jack Edwards was saying that uh, the Bruins guy, I can't remember who it was that fought him off the top of my head here, but uh, was saying that the Bruins guy beat the shit out of him, basically. And that's not what happened. I mean, it was a pretty even fight. You know, not really anything crazy happened. They were just throwing not too many connected blows. But uh, the Bruins ended up scoring two goals on that uh, while Wilson was in the box. And Jack Edwards, my God, you would have thought the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. He was celebrating and saying, oh, because of you, Tom Wilson, look at you. You got a great view of it from the penalty box, Tom Wilson, and like all this stuff. And he's just way over the top. But in this case, I, I, I thought it was entertaining. Uh, typically, I'm not a big Edwards guy. Um, and then on the other side of things, uh, the next day after the suspension came out, the seven game suspension for Wilson, Alex Ovechkin came out and called it a joke. Um, he even said the referee told them on the ice, it's not even worthy of a two minute penalty. So I don't know who the referee was or what he was looking at. And Ovechkin should probably put down the Russian gas. Cause I don't know how he could think that's not a penalty. Um, it's not a significant penalty. It more or less should have been a five minute penalty in my book. And obviously the NHL agrees that they um, levied out a seven game suspension uh, for Tom Wilson. And he's lucky it's not more. Um, they did announce that he will not appeal the suspension. So he's taking the punishment, taking his medicine, forfeiting his 312,000. Um, and he'll miss seven games for the Washington Capitals. So hey, a swig of beer for Brandon Carlo and hopes that, you know, he'll be okay. I mentioned he was released from the hospital uh, the next day. He's got a bright future in Boston on their blue line. Um, so hopefully he gets better and nothing and uh, too serious in terms of that injury. Swig a beer for him. And next, uh, I want to dive into some storylines, uh, some milestones from around the NHL, and, and take a look at some teams on a heater and, and some teams on an absolute freezer as well. Um, and also some teams we haven't discussed too much yet on the podcast, so we'll take a look around the standings here in a minute. But I first want to start with uh, some significant milestones this week in the National Hockey League. Um, Patrick Kane. He's uh, the USA-born hockey player, the best USA-born hockey player, in my opinion. Um, plays right wing for the Chicago Blackhawks, um, has been since 2007. Um, this week, this past week, he played his 1,000th NHL game. Um, hats off to him. That's awesome. Um, and also in the same week, he got his 400th NHL goal. So pretty crazy that, how that worked out. Um, but he's one of the most prolific players of all time. Like I said, one of the best USA-born players ever. I got to put him up there um, above Chris Chelios and Brian Leach and Jeremy Roenick, Mike Madonna. Um, I got to put him up there uh, above those guys. And there's a couple others I'm probably leaving out. But to me, Patrick Kane's the best. Um, this guy, he's a 2007 Calder Memorial Trophy winner. So he won the Rookie of the Year. Um, 2012, 2013, when they won the Stanley Cup, um, his second Stanley Cup at the time, he won the Conn Smythe Trophy. Um, he won the 2015, 2016 Art Ross Trophy and Hart Memorial Trophy. So Art Ross Trophy is for the most points in the National Hockey League. And the Hart Memorial Trophy is for the MVP of the NHL. And he also, in that same year, won the Ted Lindsay Award, which is the uh, best, most outstanding player as voted on by your peers and the other players in the league. So he hit the trifecta in 2015-2016 with those three awards. And um, I, I didn't mention, but I'll mention that he, he has won three Stanley Cups, if you didn't know. He won it in 2010, the one that he scored the overtime winner in Philadelphia in Game 6. He was the only person on the, on the ice that knew the puck went in. Uh, one of the most memorable goals in NHL history. 
Um, one of the reasons why on the nets now, right around like right inside the goal line, they have a clear uh, mesh there now. It used to be a white mesh, uh, but now that's it's designed so you can see the puck. So Patrick Kane shot at five hole and it got wedged up under there, and he knew it went in. And nobody else, nobody in the building, the referees, nobody knew it went in, but Kane threw all his gloves off and his helmet off and everything. And he skated down the ice and jumped into uh, Anthony Niemi, the goalie at the time's uh, arms, and was celebrating and everything. One of the most iconic moments in NHL history. And one crazy thing about Patrick Kane is he, uh, it really took him a little while to get going in terms of how productive he was. He was always a great player. He always put up solid points. Um, but it wasn't until his ninth season um, in 2015-2016, the year he hit the trifecta, as I mentioned, uh, where he scored 106 points. So he eclipsed the 100-point mark for the first time. And I feel he's turned it up from there. I mean, he had 110 a couple of years ago. He's been really carrying the load for that team, um, especially this, this year. Uh, like I mentioned with Kevin Lankin and a young rookie goaltender that's, um, you know, came onto the scene in Chicago leading the way. But Patrick Kane's got the team on his back um, this year. Remember that uh, Jonathan Taves had a health issue um, that nobody really knows about. And I really don't care to know about. I just hope he's doing well. It's none of my business. Um, but he hasn't been back and it looks like he might not be back all season. I haven't really heard anything. It's been nothing reported um, other than he was going to take some time and be out whenever they said that at the beginning of the season. But um, he's been dominant and he usually guys are really prolific early on in their career. And then when they hit 30, they start to go downhill a little bit in terms of points and production and maybe slow down a bit, but it's crazy because Patrick Kane has basically turned it up to a new level and he's got a ridiculous amount of confidence. He's leading that team. Um, he's got a lot of youthful players around him um, and, and he's bringing it every night. So they're a fun team to watch and they're right on the edge of the playoffs. They're sniffing a playoff spot right now. So that's a, a credit to Patrick Kane. So sip a beer for Kaner. Uh, Patrick Kane, like I said, best USA born hockey player of all time and a remarkable achievement for him to hit his 1,000th game and, and 400 goals um, shortly before that. Speaking of 1,000 games um, played in the NHL, Keith Yandel, we talked about him on uh, the, I think it was like the third or fourth episode uh, with my buddy Ray. And Keith Yandel, he's a defenseman for the Florida Panthers. He's played for a couple teams. Um, he's played for the Rangers. He's played for the Arizona Coyotes. Um, but he played his 1,000th game this past week. And early on in the season, it was they thought they were going to scratch this guy. Uh, they didn't think the Florida um, you know, brass didn't think that he was a part of the solution uh, to some of their woes they've had in recent years. They haven't won a playoff series in a long time. Um, they didn't think he was part of the solution and part of the future there. And they were going to sit him down and healthy scratch him. And it was a big controversy because he hasn't missed a game in almost 12 years. Um, so that's the most remarkable thing is he's a defenseman in the NHL, a top pair defenseman at that. And he's playing, you know, 25, 26, 27 minutes a night sometimes. And he's playing power play. He's playing penalty kill. Um, and he, and I'm knocking on wood right now, but uh, he never, he never has taken a puck to the foot or gotten a significant injury and missed any time. He's played 890 straight games now. Um, pretty incredible. Like I said, hasn't missed a game in almost 12 seasons. Um, unbelievable. So uh, sip a beer for Keith Yandel. Hopefully he keeps the Ironman streak going and a big accomplishment to play a thousand games in the NHL, um, let alone 890 straight games. Um, going north of the border a little bit, uh, Leon Dreisaitl, um, one of the most electric players in the league. We've talked about him ad nauseum over the uh, last few episodes. And he had a hilarious moment with the uh, the press after that debacle they had where they lost three straight they got shit pumped three times by the toronto maple leafs um one of them cost me some money in the gambling brew segment but uh the next two games they got crushed and, and dry and mcdavid both had no points in those three games and it's very very difficult to keep them off the score sheet for one game 
in two games, but three games is almost unheard of. Um, but a reporter asked a really stupid question. I mean, I don't want to knock reporters. I'm pro reporter on this uh, on this podcast. Um, but they asked a stupid question. They said, basically, you know, you guys didn't play well, Leon. Um, you know, Toronto, their their big guns played well. Matthews, Marner, Tavares, um, Morgan Riley, William Nylander, Freddie Anderson, all those guys, they stepped up to the plate. You know, does it, does it disappoint you? Or how do you feel that, uh, you know, you guys didn't hold up your end of the bargain? You and McDavid didn't do anything, didn't really show up. And I thought it was a pretty ballsy question to ask. But Drysaddle had an all-time classic uh, response where he was just like, yeah. Yeah, it was it was awesome. I love going three games without a point. It was great. Like it just a disgusted response at a stupid question. Like, what is he supposed to say? I mean, what is Drysaddle really supposed to say? Oh no, I thought we played well. We just didn't get the bounces. He's no, he's a guy that he prides himself on producing. You can tell he wants to win. He wants to do well. And I think if you're a fan, even if you're that media guy that asked the question, or if you're in that uh, dressing room with him, you know, you're on his team or you're in that organization, you gotta love that response. You could just tell in his face and the way he responded in his tone that he was pissed off because he prides himself in scoring and leading his team and leading them to victories and playing well. And he was hard on himself. And some guys can look, you know, you could look at dry side and say, Hey man, you had a couple rough games, but fuck, you've been carrying us for the entire season in, in a couple of years now, but he doesn't look at it that way. So I think you got to love that response. And I loved it. Um, so dry side. Oh, it's crazy too, because he's, he's born in Germany and English is his second language, but you'd never know it. He speaks better English than I do. Um, so it's pretty crazy, man. More power to, to Leon Dreisaitl. He keeps sticking up sometimes. Like I said, I'm pro, I'm pro reporter, um, on this podcast, but sometimes I think it, you know, the player deserves to be able to kind of give a snotty response back a little bit. So, um, great to see that from Dreisaitl. Um, and, and Matt Barzell, um, already, I think he penciled in himself and maybe he even sharpied himself in for a goal of the year. It's one of the best goals I've ever seen in my life. Um, Matt Barzell for the New York Islanders. Um, if you didn't see it, I'll try to tweet it out from at Rambling Brews. I don't think I can put it on the Instagram at uh, Rambling Brews podcast. I don't think the NHL allows you to post highlights on social media. They're very strict about that. Um, but I'll see what I can do. I might have to just post YouTube clips um, on the Twitter and on the Instagram. But he had a ridiculous goal, as I said, probably one of the best goals I've ever seen. So if you didn't see it, he's um, he's one on one kind of like at the, in a the neutral zone and the puck's loose. It's it's out ahead of him and the defenseman is Rasmus Ristolainen for Buffalo. God, poor Buffalo Sabers um, on the on another uh, highlight reel for the wrong reasons. But um, him and Ristolainen are chasing after the puck, and Ristolainen's kind of got a step on him. But Barzell's one of the best skaters in the league, one of the fastest skaters in the league for sure. He gets a stick on it, chips it up, and basically gets ahead of Ristolainen. Ristolainen's still in decent position, but uh, Barzell has such a low center of gravity. He's so strong on his edges. He gets down and he kind of like protects the puck with his left leg. Um, and basically Ristolainen, poor Ristolainen, he toe-picked the shit out of himself and just slides into the corner. And mind you, Barzell's going mock speed now. He's he's gotten past, he's right at the face-off circle, the right circle, and he's gotten past Ristolainen. He's going towards the net. And the goalie's playing it great. Um, he's in great position. And he thinks that Barzell's going backhand and probably 99.9% .9 of people watching the game thought he was going backhand just based on how much speed he had and which direction he was coming in. But Barzell has the mind capacity to put the puck between his legs. So he comes across the crease like he's going to go backhand, puts the puck between his legs and slides it right where the goalie just slid past. Because the goalie, like I said, he was playing it perfect. Um, unbelievable goal. And when you, like I've seen people do it in shootouts, seen people do it on, you know, long hundred foot breakaways uh, where they come in and they'll go uh, between the legs. But this guy, he did it at mock speed, which was incredible. 
Um, so hats off to Matt Barzell. Um, I, I can't see any goal beating that. So a swig of beer for that. That was great. And um, one of the more uh, somber moments of the week, um, but I want to bring up, I want to make sure we pay our respects. Um, Walter Gretzky, uh, the father of the great one, Wayne Gretzky, um, he passed away this past week at the age of 82. Um, he was basically a father figure to the hockey world, a beloved man all across Canada and North America, and really the hockey world in general all over the world. Um, great guy. So I definitely wanted to, uh, you know, pay our respects to him and say, you know, we'll give our condolences out to the Gretzky family and anybody that's friends and, and close with him. Um, it's a significant loss for the world of hockey. Um, so rest in peace uh, to Walter Gretzky. And on a much brighter note, this is an absolute win for the NHL in my book. Um, we've talked about it before, but um, the NHL TV deal is up in the United States after this year um, with uh, exclusively with NBC. Um, so it's reported that the NHL has agreed to a seven-year deal with ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. Um, and it also grants Disney streaming rights. Now, granted, they're still going to kind of split. It's going to be ESPN and NBC. So they haven't finalized the NBC USA Network um, part of the deal yet. But the details are starting to come out about the ESPN side of the deal. So like I said, it grants Disney and ESPN Plus some streaming rights. Um, it'll give ESPN the exclusive rights to four Stanley Cup finals between the years 2022 and 2028. Um, no financial terms were discussed, so that'll be big to see how that impacts the salary cap going forward. That was one thing the NHL, uh, people at the NHL in the United States were really hoping for, a big TV contract to be able to uh, grow the league and, and grow the salary cap uh, for some of these teams. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where that plays out because, again, it's covid and they might not have got a, a big a deal as they wanted, but I think it's a great thing for the NHL to get back on ESPN. Um, I mean, right now, if you go to ESPN.com, the header at the top with all the sports that are listed, like the NHL is not even there. Like it'll say NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, NCAA basketball, NCAA women's basketball. Fuck, it'll probably say cricket and all these other stupid ass sports. But the NHL is not even there. You got to click down through a couple drop menus to get to it. And I think they're just a little bit bitter about the last negotiation where NBC won the rights exclusively. And I don't, I don't know when that was, but I don't think the NHL's been on ESPN since probably you know 2006, somewhere in there, maybe right after the lockout. So pretty crazy. But they're gonna also have a. Um, uh, more hockey centric shows on ESPN plus. So that's interesting. And I think it'll be a nice change of pace for ESPN because I, I personally, I can't watch it. I, I really don't care what LeBron James had for breakfast every day. So that's really what they talk about in the stupid debate shows. And um, we'll get into that in a second here, but like it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think, and I pray that they can somehow get Gary Thorne, who I think is the best play-by-play -play announcer from a national perspective in hockey of all time. He's a little bit ahead of Doc Emmerich um, from a national perspective. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a Mike Lane guy through and through for the Penguins. He's a goat. Um, but it would be awesome if they can get Gary Thorne to come back. He was so electric. Some of his, uh, some of his calls, I'll tweet some of these out from at Rambling Brews on Twitter too, so you can check them out. But he's got some of the most electric goal calls and just significant moments in NHL history were called by Gary Thorne. So him and Bill Clement. Uh, so it'd be nice to get the old band back together, but we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, but more to come on that. They still have to finalize the NBC and USA side of the deal because I did mention before on an episode that uh, the NBCSN is going away. So it looks like the NBC side of the deal, the hockey will be on USA Network, at least for the time being, with some of the games on the main NBC national TV channel. 
Um, but we'll see where it plays out and hopefully we'll get some more details in the coming days in terms of finances and, and see how this is going to help the NHL. But I think they, they, uh, they hit it out of the park with this one. So congrats to the NHL on that. And Gary Bettman, what a good job. And one other note from around the NHL in terms of the league as a whole, uh, the NHL had a board of governors meeting this past week where um, the NHL is proposing changes to how the draft lottery works. Um, so a couple of significant pieces, but for those who, who uh, don't know, the NHL draft lottery is put in place so that teams that don't make the playoffs, um, they go into a lottery um, with certain percentages based on how you finished and certain odds to get the number one overall pick. So teams, it, it, it's aimed to prevent teams from just tanking completely to guarantee themselves the number one pick to try to drive competitiveness in the league. Um, but it's a little bit flawed and it has been because they used to have every team that didn't make the playoffs would enter the lottery. So 16 teams every year make the playoffs. So now with 31 teams in the league, you would have 15 teams that don't make the uh, playoffs and 15 teams, you know, vying for the, uh, the lottery there. So, you know, you might be the 15th seed. You're probably not likely to get it, but there's still a chance. So it really makes no sense from a lottery perspective why the 15th team, the team that just barely missed the playoffs, should be in the running potentially for um, the number one pick or to get like a top five pick because they can jump up a lot. So that's kind of what this uh, change is. Um, but teams now would be limited to no more than two lottery wins in a five-year period. So this is kind of like the Edmonton Oilers rule um, because the Oilers a few years back, I think they had three lottery picks in five years and somehow have mangled it and can't figure it out. Um, but they want to prevent that from happening. Um, teams would now only be allowed to jump 10 spots also with the lottery win. So that's kind of what I was just talking about before. If you're like the 15, um, 15th you know, seed, I guess, if you want to call it that, in terms of having the lowest odds to win the lottery, you could win the lottery, but you can only jump up 10 spots. You wouldn't be able to go up to number one. You have to go up to number five. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Like if that were to happen, what, you know, what uh, parameters and what rules would be in place and how they would select the next ball and the next lottery drawing and all of that stuff. So I think all in all, some positive changes. Um, it's pretty interesting because uh, new director of hockey operations for the Penguins, Brian Burke, um, he basically has been saying this for years. He's been all over TV in Canada on Sportsnet. Um, he's been saying it even while he was in the league working at, you know, in the front offices of some teams or um, in the league itself. So it's cool to see that come to fruition. And I bet you he's happy. I'd be interested to see what he says about it when it gets all finalized because it hasn't been finalized yet. It's just been proposed. Uh, but what you, we'll keep you updated on that. Um, so like I said, in the intro, I want to talk, um, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the NHL standing, some teams that are really on a heater, um, playing well, and some teams that are on a freezer and still puttering at the bottom of the standings a little bit surprisingly. I know some of the teams we kind of expected to be bad. Uh, we won't touch on those, but, um, we'll start with the East division. Um, the New York Islanders, I mean, they're playing great. I, I thought they were going to miss the playoffs this year. I, I didn't think they were that good. They're very structured. Um, very boring to watch. One of the most boring teams in the NHL. Um, so that's part, partly why I hope they they wouldn't make the playoffs. But right now they're in first in the division, uh, playing great, sitting at 34 points. They've got 15 wins, six losses, and uh, four overtime losses. Um, sitting atop the division, they're two points up on the Washington Capitals, um, who have 14 wins, six losses, and four overtime losses in 24 games. So um, right on their heels, the Capitals are, and then right on the Capitals heels are the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins had a little bit of a resurgence the last couple of weeks, uh, playing great, getting great goaltending from Tristan Jari. Um, this past Tuesday night against the New York Rangers was unbelievable. He kept him in the game. He had arguably the save of the year, um, late in the game there and really kept him in it. The Penguins, I think at one point in the third period were being outshot 14 to nothing in that period. Um, so they were just really, you know, 
playing defense and trying to squeak out a win. Um, ended up getting a victory four to two, but they're really starting to click a little bit. Evgeny Malkin and and those boys and Kasperi Kapanen. We'll talk about them here in a minute. But the Penguins are are surging right now. They're up in third place. They're only three points out of first, as I mentioned, one point behind their arch rival, the Washington Capitals. Um, and the Boston Bruins, they've played a couple less games than, than some of these teams, uh, three less than the Penguins that are right ahead of them, but they're two points back at 29 points. So right now the Philadelphia Flyers are sitting on the outside looking in. Um, and I think in this East Division, it's really a five-horse race. I mean, it's the Islanders, the Caps, the Penguins, the Bruins, and the Flyers really vowing for those top four spots. Um, I don't think the Rangers really have any hope, especially without Panarin and, and no timetable yet on his return. I did hear from his leave of absence, some people were saying it's a two-week leave of absence, but I haven't seen that confirmed, and I haven't seen like any update on that because that should be coming up soon when he's coming back, but it might be too little too late. Um, the New Jersey Devils are just brutal. Um, and, and the Buffalo Sabres, as we've talked about, they're just awful. And even worse news now, I talked about how Jack Eichel last week hasn't been producing and hasn't been living up to his salary and his captaincy and all the, the hype um, in terms of being a leader and elevating the team. He's doing well on the score sheet. Well, bad news, it sounds like he's going to be out long-term, and that's probably good news for him. He can kind of relax and worry about what's going to happen next year because I think he has a no-trade clause that click, uh, that clicks in, I guess, next year. So the team might be you know, looking to move him. So we'll see how that goes, um, you know, how that works out for them. But again, they're just, they're not even close to a playoff team. Um, so again, five team race there. Um, the West division, this division is pretty tough. Um, this is the division last week that uh, I had all four teams right in my early predictions. Um, but right now we've got the Vegas Golden Knights sitting atop the division. Uh, they've got 16 wins, five losses, and one overtime loss for 33 points. Uh, they're one point ahead of the St. Louis Blues, who are sitting at uh, 14 wins, eight losses, and four overtime losses. So they have 32 points. Uh, the Minnesota Wilds still surging a little bit. Uh, they've got 14 wins, eight losses, and one overtime loss um, and 29 points. So they played a couple games less than St. Louis, um, who are right above them with a three-point lead. But they played three less games than St. Louis, so a lot to uh, pay attention to there. And the Colorado Avalanche, um, they're without Nathan McKinnon. They're always banged up, man. These The poor Avalanche. Uh, last year, they had a freaking wagon of a team. And, um, you know, they, they had so many injuries in the, in the playoffs. They lost both their goalies. They lost a number of uh, good players on the back end on the blue line. Uh, but this year, they were playing well, and, and Nathan McKinnon went down after, a, you know, somewhat of a cheap hit, I would say, um, he got hit up high, but it seems like he'll be coming back soon, hopefully. Uh, but they're still in a playoff position right now. And then Arizona, L.A., Anaheim, and San Jose are all on, on the outside looking in. And and um, Arizona and L.A., they're surprising. Um, Arizona, they're 12 wins, 10 losses, and three overtime losses. So they're only one point out of a playoff spot right now. And L.A. is two points out of a playoff spot right now. I thought that team would be a lottery pick. Um, so I think it's a six-team race there, and really I don't think Arizona or L.A. have any chance to win the division or advance out of the first round. But if they can make the playoffs, that would be big for those franchises and get those guys some experience, um, the young guys that they have in that organization. Um, there's no hope for the Anaheim Ducks and the San Jose Sharks just not getting the goaltending um, in San Jose. And in, in Anaheim, the goaltending is probably the best part with John Gibson, but he's probably looking to try to get the hell out of there as soon as he can. Um, they're just not good enough. They just aren't aren't quite there yet. So bright future. They've got a lot of prospects, but right now it's just uh, you know tough to watch if you're an Anaheim Ducks fan. Um, the Central Division. Uh, right now we've got the Tampa Bay uh, Lightning. They're 
looking like the best team in the league again. They got 17 wins, four losses, and two overtime losses uh, for 36 points. Um, just dominating. Um, and it's crazy because their best player, Nikita Kucherov's out for the season. So he's going to be back in time for the postseason. So look out Central Division and look out League. When he gets back, if he comes in and clicks at any sort of um, uh, resemblance to what he was last year, I mean, I don't see how you could bet against the Tampa Bay Lightning to repeat this year. I mean, you've got Carolina right behind them. They're playing great. 17 wins, six losses, and one overtime loss. They're sitting at 35 points, one point behind the Tampa Bay Lightning, but they've played one more game to this point. And Florida, they're playing great too. Like I've talked about, they're a surprise team in this league. Um, 15 wins, five losses, and four overtime losses. So they're one point behind Carolina and only two points behind Tampa. So um, crazy. And lastly, um, I've talked about Patrick Kane. I talked about Kevin Lankinen in the crease for the Blackhawks, but they're only five points out of first place. And I think a lot of people in, in this um, league thought, and including me as a fan watching, thought this team was going to be garbage. They were going to be a lottery pick. Um, one of the questions about this division for me is like, what in the blue hell is wrong with the Nashville Predators? They have one of the best blue lines in the NHL. They've got Roman Yossi. They've got Ryan Ellis. They've got Matias Ekholm. They've got Pekka Rene and UC Saros um, split in the cage. Two great goaltenders. Um, they're a very defensive-minded team. They've got good defensive forwards. Ryan Johansson. Uh, Matt Duchesne's a, a pretty good defensive forward, although he's out right now with injury. But it's crazy. Like They've given up 21 more goals than they've scored, and they're supposed to be a defensive specialist team. They're just not playing well, and you got to figure – their head coach, John Hines, um, his seat is hot as hell right now. He's got to be feeling the pressure. Um, and he was just fired a, you know, a year and a half ago or so from the New Jersey Devils, and then he went on to take the job in Nashville, and he really hasn't done much at all. I mean, they've gotten worse. Um, and, and Dallas, they're having a rough go at it this year. They've been had a lot of games postponed. Um, there's seven wins, eight losses, and five overtime losses through 20 games. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs this year. And that's a bit of a uh, disappointment coming off a Stanley Cup final appearance last year. Now, granted, it was the COVID bubble, so I'm not sure they would have made it um, if it was a regular season. But they, they gelled at the right time last year, and you got to give them credit. But this year, they're just not even close. And uh, Detroit, they're just Detroit. Um, they're going to be rebuilding for a long time, and they know it. Um, but the big surprise is, is Nashville for me in that division. And uh, Columbus, they're only six points out of a playoff spot, but I think it's really a, a four-team race there. I don't think Columbus can get in. If Chicago and Patrick Kane and Lankinen and Alex DeBrinkett and uh, Dylan Strome and those guys keep playing the way they are for the Blackhawks, I think they're going to get in. And they could scare somebody in the first round because just the, their high-end talent. You never know. They might get Jonathan Taves back. We don't know much about it, but it remains to be seen there. Um, and lastly, the North Division, the All-Canadian Division, um, some people call it a glorified AHL because there's no defense and everyone just scoring a ton of points. And these teams will likely get dummied, maybe outside of Toronto, would likely get dummied by anybody else in the league once the playoffs start. Um, but right now you got Toronto. Um, they're playing unbelievable. They've got 18 wins, six losses, and two overtime losses for 38 points. They've got a six-point cushion on the Edmonton Oilers, who I just mentioned before. They beat them three times in a row. It wasn't just beat them. They shit-pumped them. Um, I think they shut them out the first two times, and they won the third game 6-1. to one. Um, so they look strong, uh, the Leafs do. And third place, Winnipeg, uh, they're seven points behind the, the Leafs, um, but one point behind the Oilers with 15 wins, eight losses, and one overtime loss. And Montreal, they're, they're under some new coaching with uh, Dominic Ducharme, and um, they've got 11 wins, six losses, and seven overtime points. So they're really staying alive with those overtime points. Um, but Vancouver, they're still right there. Calgary's still right there. So it, I think it's a six-team race in that division. Ottawa really has no hope, and 
like I said, they've got a they've got a young team. I thought they might make the playoffs. I picked them to make the playoffs just because I thought this division would be tough, and I thought you know they could they could um, scare some people and they were getting Matt Murray in the cage, but really. Like I said last episode, <laughs> poor Matt Murray, man. He's just, it's target practice for him. And he, he lost his game a couple years ago and hasn't really gotten it back. And I feel for him um, as a Penguin fan. He did a lot for us. And and uh, he was a great player here in Pittsburgh. But, you know, it's just not going as planned. And, and I'm not sure what he expected going in there with that young team, that inexperienced team. But they're definitely a tough out, though. I mean, they play a tough game. Brady Kachuk is an absolute nut out there on the ice. Um, he'll fight anybody. He gets in people's kitchens. He's just like his brother, uh, Matthew, and just like his dad, Keith Kachuk. It's funny how they all play the same way. Um, productive as hell. I think Ottawa, it, you know, it would make sense for them to put the, the put the C on Brady Kachuk next year. Um, he's going to be there for a long time if he wants to, and he's the type of player you can build a franchise around. But right now, they just don't have it this year. Um, and you know, it, it, it's it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the rest of the season plays out. But again, we're you know. 10 weeks into the season I think teams pretty much know what they have and and we'll see how it plays out but there's going to be some there's going to be some great matchups um you know when when the postseason rolls around so swig a beer for the teams in the playoffs and and uh the penguins resurging right now they're playing great so I'm I'm fucking stoked about that and real quick too looking at some statistics around the league um in terms of goal scoring Austin Matthews sits atop the league still. He missed a couple games due to injury, but he sits atop the league still um, with 18 goals in 23 games. Um, at one point, he was on pace for like 52 goals in 56 games. I'm not sure exactly what his pace is now because I don't know how many games he actually missed, but still playing great. Uh, McDavid is right behind him with 15 goals. Um, Tyler Toffoli, a big surprise, and one of those guys that Vancouver let go um, in free agency. I'm not sure that was the wisest choice, but he's playing great. He's got 15 goals as well. Um, Alex DeBrinkett's got 14 goals and there's a number of guys with 13. So it's pretty crazy. This, the scoring is, is looking good right now. And I think, um, one of the biggest surprises in terms of this leaderboard that I'm looking at, Dustin Brown has 13 goals for the LA Kings. This guy's 36 years old. He really had some horrible years. He got stripped of this, uh, captaincy whenever he was in LA, He's still in LA, but he got stripped of the captaincy there, which is pretty much, you know, unprecedented, um, in recent years, outside of Joe Thornton, the same thing happened to Joe Thornton in San Jose, and they gave it to Joe Pavelski. In this case, they stripped the C off of Dustin Brown and gave it to Anze Kopitar. Um, really solid choice, obviously. Um, he's a great leader, great player, but it's cool to see Dustin Brown's resurgence a little bit. Um, as he's got 13 goals in 24 games, that's a 44 goal pace, I believe, on an 82 game regular season. So, uh, hopefully, you know he's got a couple years left in him, and that's a big reason why the LA Kings are sniffing the playoffs right now. When when I thought, and a lot of people thought, they were going to be just brutal basement dwellers this year. Um, so, sip a beer for Dustin Brown. Hell of a fucking season. And, and last thing I want to point out in terms of goal scoring in the NHL right now. Um, Alex Ovechkin has eight goals in 20 games. He's not even in the top. Uh, I think he's like number 59 or something in the league right now. Um, so it's pretty surprising. I had him penciled in as going to be challenging for the Rocket Richard, but it doesn't appear that's the case. I don't know if he's having a down year or whatever the case is, but um, he's 10 goals behind the leader right now and you know, about a little less than 30 games to go for them. So I don't know if he's going to be able to pass um, everybody and, and get there, but we'll see. Um Taking a look at points in the NHL right now, I mean, Connor McDavid's still lighting everybody up. I mentioned he had no points in that three-game series against the Leafs a couple weeks ago, um, or last week, I should say, and he's still seven points up on number two, which is Patrick Kane, and I talked about Patrick Kane when we talked about the milestones he reached. He's 
just on a tear. I mean, he doesn't show any signs of slowing down. He's 32 years old, but he's got 11 goals, 27 assists, and 38 points in 26 games, playing well, really leading the team there and um, leading the the Chicago Blackhawks potentially to the playoffs. So great to see that. I mean, he's really putting up points. And Dreisaitl's right up there too um, with 37 points. So pretty much nothing really has changed there. The top guys, McDavid, uh, Kane, Dreisaitl, Marner, they're all up there at the top of the NHL leaderboard. Um, Sidney Crosby has 22 points in 23 games right now. So he's kind of just below his career average. Um, but I got to figure he's going to turn it on here a little bit. He has been playing better. As I mentioned, the Penguins have been playing better as of late. Um, and, and the Penguins as a team, I should talk about too. They've won eight of their last 11 games. Um, last week we talked about Sidney Crosby was put on the COVID-19 list. Um, he was actually taken off the COVID-19 list after two days. I believe they haven't confirmed it, but I, I assume it was a, a false positive um, because he missed practice or they didn't have a morning skate the, the day he, uh, I guess, tested positive or whatever the case was, whatever the reason was for him to be on the COVID-19 protocol list. Um, they didn't practice the next day or he missed practice the next day, I should say, but then he was able to play the following night. Um, so he, he he's back. So that's great news for the Penguins. Um, Evgeny Malkin too. He came out after a couple of games ago. He said he'd be better. Um, he said he was right there. He, you know, he wasn't quite feeling it whenever he was, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he just didn't feel right. Uh, but now he's like right on the verge of it. And he's a man of his word. The last four or five games, he's been unbelievable. I think he has seven points in his last four games. Um, really showing some significant chemistry and, and comfort with uh, Kasperi Kapanen on the wing. Um, I think Kapanen also has seven points in those four games. Um, just playing great. I mean, they, they look great on zone entries. They just seem to be finding each other. Their chemistry is up. Um, Kasperi Kapanen is basically the, the new Michael Grabner for me. Um, if you don't know who Michael Grabner is, uh, he played a number of years with a, a bunch of teams, but um, most uh, recently the Arizona Coyotes and the New York Rangers. But it seemed like he got a breakaway every game, especially shorthanded. Um, he's just so fast. He was the fastest skater in the league for a long time. Um, wasn't the best finisher, but Kasperi Kapanen has a little bit more finishing ability than Grabner did, but he's always just getting a ton of open ice. And I think that really helps Evgeny Malkin. He, he has so much speed. He's given more time and space to Malkin and finding Malkin in certain spots, or he's burying the chances when Malkin puts it on his tape. Um, so it's great to see that. Um, Brian Dumoulin finally returned, and he looks better than he did basically the last couple of years. He looks outstanding. It doesn't look like he has an ounce of rust in his game. Um, he's played great. Um, he's, a, he's a huge... Um, you know, boost to the, the lineup on the back end for the Penguins and getting him back on that top pair with uh, Chris Letang, who's also surging and playing well and racking up points and playing great defensively. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a big analytics guy, um, but his analytics appear to be off the charts uh, from everything I've read, and he's playing great. Um, so it, it's great to see that and having his partner back, I'm sure, has a lot to do with it. Um, Sam Lafferty, he's been benched. I, I've been high on Sam Lafferty. Um, he's a fourth line guy. He's got a lot of speed. I think he's born in Altoona, PA, which is pretty cool. Um, he has a lot of speed, um, plays the game hard, checks hard, not the best finisher, but he can score. Um, but he made a couple just egregious turnovers the last couple games that led to some, uh, odd man rushes and just plays that if you're that kind of player, you're like a fringe NHL player and you make those plays, you're going to sit your ass on the bench. I guarantee it. Um, you got to chip those pucks in deep. Don't try to force anything. No backhand saucer passes across the ice leading to breakaways or leading to two on ones. You got to know better than that. So right now he's kind of found himself on the, on the outside looking in, in terms of the lineup. And um, we'll see what happens with that if he's able to get back in. But the Penguins are really surging right now. I mentioned they've won eight of their last 11. So if they keep playing well, I don't see how, um, you know, he's going to get back in the lineup. Um, 
And one great thing uh, that works, I think, in the Penguins' favor is they have 31 games remaining. Um, they've got eight games against Buffalo, bottom-feeding horrible team. They've got eight games against New Jersey, bottom-feeding horrible team. They've got six games against Boston. Always tough to beat Boston, but four of those are in Pittsburgh. I've mentioned before that it's like they, they, they have no chance. They always go into Boston up in TD Garden and they get their ass beat. Um, so it's great to see that four of those games are in Pittsburgh. That's huge. They've got two more games against the New York Rangers. Uh, which they've been beaten every time. I think I think the Penguins beat them every single time this year. Maybe they lost one of them. Um, and the Philadelphia Flyers, they've got three against them. They've been splitting that series. Um, two against the Islanders. The Penguins have done pretty well against the Islanders. And two against the Capitals. They've they've won more games against the Capitals than they've lost. So um, the Penguins have basically survived the worst part of their schedule. And I think things are looking up. Like I said, they've got 16 games to go. Um, against Buffalo and New Jersey, and then two more against the Rangers. So if they can rack up some points, a lot of those games are at home. If they can rack up some points, I think they play 12 home games in the month of March, which is I think is one less than one shy, I should say, of an NHL record. Um, so they got to they got to uh, hold serve on home ice. And if they can beat up on those bottom feeder teams, they did pretty well through the uh, first half of the season against a very very tough schedule. Um, things are boding well for the Penguins to make the playoffs and potentially make some noise. So I know a lot of people didn't think that would happen. You know, early on in the season, they were very inconsistent and they still could be inconsistent. And I, you know, we could have this episode next week and they could have lost two or three, the next, you know, two or three games in a row, um, over the next couple of days. And I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm holding out hope. And I think they've turned the corner. I think they've got a real good chance to start on a little run here and, um, you know, put some fear in the teams in their division that they're coming up on them and, and they, they have a legitimate shot. They're only three points back, as I said. They have a legitimate shot uh, to win this division, in my opinion. Um, and, and one last note from around the uh, current NHL, um, like last week when we took a look at the uh, favorites for the Calder Trophy, uh, I want to take a look here at about uh, 10 weeks into the season. I want to take a look at another NHL award. Um, if I had my ballot, um, if I was making votes, who I would vote for for the Vezina Trophy, which is the best goaltender in the NHL. And right now I think it's really a two-horse race. I think it's Tampa Bay Lightning goaltender um, Andre Vasilevsky. Um, he's got 15 wins, three losses, one overtime loss. He's got a 1.73 goals against average and a .939 save percentage. So he saves 93.9% of the shots he faces. Um, and secondly, Marc-Andre Fleury, um, the ex-Penguin. He's playing outstanding um, in the absence of starter Robin Leonard out there um, in, in Vegas. Um, he's got 12 wins, four losses, no overtime losses. He's got a 1.57 goals against average and a .943, so 94 0.3% save percentage. Um, so he, he's got better stats than Vasilevsky. Um, hasn't played as many games. And the only reason I have him at number two is I wonder what's going to happen when the starting goalie, if, if Leonard comes back. It'd be crazy to see Pete DeBoer, the coach for the uh, Vegas Golden Knights, go away from Flurry, but it's happened before. I mean, look at the Penguins. They did it. Uh, Flurry was dominant um, in the second year of the back-to-backs. And uh, they they went right back with Matt Murray, um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see you know the organization they paid Robin Leonard a lot of money um, this past summer they signed him um, the coach has a lot of faith in him so we'll see what happens and it'll be interesting to see how Marc Andre Fleury handles it I have no doubt um, if it does happen and he gets uh, yanked and they put Leonard in for the stretch run of the playoffs and everything that he'll handle it like a true pro he always has he's a great guy unbelievable teammate every teammate that's ever played with him will tell you that. Um, but it's definitely just a two-horse race for me right now, and I wouldn't have a problem with either one of these guys winning it. Both of these teams are wagons. They're both loaded. Um, they could very well uh, end up in the Stanley Cup final, depending on how it shakes out with the, the uh, COVID bracket and everything. But 
These are arguably the two best teams in the NHL right now and the two best goaltenders in the NHL right now. So it's going to be awesome to watch um, down the stretch here. Um, some other stories from around the sports world. I mentioned in the intro that Bob Huggins, the coach of the uh, men's basketball, West Virginia Mountaineers, um, has 899 wins. Um, he plays Thursday. So the day this podcast comes out, I think the game's at 1130 in the morning against Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament. Um, would be his 900th win if he gets the win. So um, I'm not sure if this podcast will drop before then, um, but hopefully he gets the win. It's going to be remarkable when he gets it. Um, he's he's so well-deserving, such a great guy. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about before I even get into Bob Huggins is how incredible West Virginia's basketball schedule is. Like for college, they play in the Big 12. Um, so just so you guys know, the Big 12 is basically the teams, you know, you got Texas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Iowa, Iowa State, um, teams like that. Like West Virginia is way far away from them. And I, I think uh, I heard Bob Huggins was on a radio show. I think it was the Pat McAfee show, actually, this past week where he was saying, like, their shortest flight is a little over four hours. Um, and, and you have it, it's crazy. Like they'll get home. They'll, they'll go out and they'll play at uh, in Lubbock against Texas Tech. And then they'll fly home after the game. They get in at six, you know, five six in the morning back in Morgantown. Then they've got to go um, to class all day. They've got study halls. They've got tests or whatever the case is. And you can laugh. You can knock them and say that the players don't actually go to class, but they have they have to go to their study halls and things like that. But at any rate, you wouldn't want to be flying across the country, get play a basketball game, fly across the country, get in at five or six in the morning, have to get up, do some schoolwork, whatever the case is, then go to practice later that day. Um, so it's definitely a huge challenge for Bob Huggins, and it's a tribute to how great of a coach he is because he's able to kind of find different ways to, to teach and to coach these players because sometimes they have to do um, – you know, extra film study. They don't have the energy to practice every day. You know, they they don't have the ability to do that because they have to travel all the time. And there's been a lot of, uh, Bob Huggins said, a lot of coaches and a lot of uh, people in the athletic departments in different schools throughout the Big 12 have said, I don't know how you do it. I have no idea how you do it. We we have to go out to Morgantown one time a year and it's awful. Um, so it's crazy. It's a testament to Bob Huggins, um, and it's a testament to his players and how they bought in and the pride of West Virginia basketball and the pride of West Virginia in general. Um, I, I, I can't say enough about Bob Huggins. He's a godsend to this, the university. Um, he's a graduate. He's a mountaineer at heart. Um, I don't think people that aren't from West Virginia, and I'm not even from West Virginia, but I went there. I lived there for four years. Um, unbelievable state. Morgantown's an unbelievable city. Um, great school. I don't think people can understand unless you went there. And I hate saying that. I hate when people say, oh, you don't understand because you don't go here. You know that you get a lot of that from like Penn State fans and stuff like that. You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. You you know, I, I don't buy into that. But I think just from this perspective, like the pride that West Virginians have in WVU athletics, it doesn't matter if it's rifle, it's soccer, it's football, it's basketball, it's volleyball, it doesn't matter. Um, they have such pride in their team. And I know Marshall's in the state of West Virginia, but nobody really cares about Marshall. That's no knock on Marshall, but they've never beaten West Virginia one time in football. They're not typically competitive in basketball anymore um, in terms of playing against WVU. So, and it's not a knock on them, but West Virginia University is the state's university. Um, there's no pro teams in West Virginia. I mean, some some people cheer for the Steelers, or if they live in the Eastern Panhandle over there, they'll cheer for, you know, the Washington football team or the Ravens or the Giants or whatever the case is. Um, but there's no pro team there, and these people live and they breathe and they die with West Virginia athletics. Um, and, and Bob Huggins provides so much joy. Um, it's unbelievable. Whenever the the uh, teams are playing well, and even if they aren't, those stadiums are packed 
all the time. The, you know, the pride that, they, that these fans have and um, what Bob Huggins gives back to them. And he's, he's one of their own. He's, he's a, he's a West Virginia guy. Um, I can't stress that enough. It's a great, great uh, achievement. I'm so happy for him to become the sixth division one coach. Um, and I'll never forget whenever I was in uh, college, they went to the final four of my freshman year in basketball in uh, 2009. And uh, they dummied Kentucky, who uh, it's funny because John Calipari, the coach of Kentucky, he's um, him and him and Bob Huggins. I think they're buddies, uh, but they always have like this little like funny rivalry going on in the media um, where, you know, he, they dummied Kentucky and, and Calipari's never beaten uh, Bob Huggins. I don't think now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll have to talk to my buddy Troy on that. He's the, He's the know-it-all in terms of all of all things West Virginia, but um, it, Huggins is an unbelievable coach, great guy. Um, I'll never forget it. Like I said, whenever they were playing uh, Pitt my freshman year, um, and those games were always electric. I mean, especially at West Virginia, the crowd's always rowdy, and it's always fun being in the student section, sitting right on top of the uh, the court, chanting and all this stuff. And somebody threw a goddamn coin uh, at the Pitt huddle during a timeout and it hit one of their assistant coaches in the face. I'll never forget this. And like, that's not right. That shouldn't have happened, but you you get a bunch of West Virginia students in a small area, fired up playing against Pitt and half of them are fucking waffled um, based on whatever they were drinking before they came in. And Bob Huggins grabbed the mic and said, Hey, quit being idiots and all this stuff, you know, have some respect, blah, blah, blah. And the crowd went bananas. Like he got a huge pop for that. Um, Great guy. He's just a, a man's man. Um, you know, one of the best, uh, best guys, most hilarious guys. I mean, the guy had a heart attack in the middle of a game a couple of years ago. Um, then, you know, he, he was okay, obviously, thank God. And then a couple of years, I don't know if it was a couple of years, maybe a couple of weeks or months or whatever it was later. Um, he, he had a defibrillator put in after that heart attack incident and his defibrillator went off in the middle of the game and basically like put your heartbeat back in rhythm. Um, and he, like, he could have easily went to the hospital. I remember talking to my mom about it, who's a nurse. And she's like, he should definitely go to the hospital. Like that's ridiculous. He didn't go. And he, he said, no, I'm coaching the rest of the game. He's just an absolute beauty. Um, great guy uh, means so much to the, the university means so much to the state. So big fucking swig of beer for Bob Huggins. I know he'd be probably slugging some beers right now if he was listening. And moving on to the NFL uh, for the Steelers, big Ben Roethlisberger, he's returning. Um, he restructured his contract. Uh, it's going to save $15 million, uh, give or take, uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers on the cap this year. A lot of people thought, uh, including me, that he might retire. I mean, he says it. He's been saying he's going to retire for the last six, seven years. Um, he always plants that seed. But uh, Marquise Pouncey, the longtime center for the Steelers, who Ben Roethlisberger is very close with, retired. Um, so a lot of people, including myself, like I said, thought Roethlisberger would retire. And I think honestly, it was probably a good time for him to retire. It, it, it puts the Steelers in a tough position. Um, they think they're contenders. I personally don't, they have a good defense, but they just lost Bud Dupree to free agency. Um, he's one of their best pass rushers. He, he plays the opposite side to TJ Watt dynamic duo in terms of pass rushing in the NFL. Um, but I don't, I don't think they're really anywhere close to a championship. I mean, they've got no running back. Um, James Conner's a free agent. I hope they don't bring him back, but they might just because of his story and everything. Um, and, and it's a great story, but again, he's just not a, he's not an NFL player for me. Um, and, and like Juju Smith Schuster is kind of up in the air right now. Nobody knows if he's going to be coming back or maybe he shouldn't come back, but whatever the case is in terms of big Ben Roethlisberger, I think maybe it was time for the Steelers to move on. Um, 
like they don't have a quarterback to replace him, but I'm not sure he's really going to be able to get the job done. So we'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, I think the fans are you're 50 50 on this, but I, I don't see the Steelers doing too much next year. So I think we'll probably be back in the same boat next year and see what Ben Roethlisberger is going to do. But more power to Roethlisberger. Um, the one question I've seen all over social media and all over TV on Fox Sports and on ESPN, um, Russell Wilson apparently wants his way out of Seattle. Like that's crazy to me. I so I don't follow the Seattle Seahawks too much, obviously. But I, I did read that there might be some fire with the smoke to that rumor, and it, I think it'd be an absolutely horrible move for the Seattle Seahawks. Now, if Russell Wilson wants out, he wants out. I mean, there's not much the team can do there. Um, they can you know keep him, but he might not be happy, and that usually doesn't end well. But if the Seahawks are trying to move on, a I'm not sure who's going to replace him, what better quarterback you're going to get, because Russell Wilson's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, in my opinion. They've got DK Metcalf. He, he you know he's a great wide receiver. He's big. He's jacked. He's huge. Um, just a great player, and they just need to add a couple pieces around him. I mean, Russell Wilson is literally running for his life, and when I say that, I mean that. His offensive line is garbage. Um, he's running for his life every play. You thought Pat Mahomes is running for his life in the Super Bowl, you know, times that by five, and you got Russell Wilson in week eight, you know, playing against the Arizona Cardinals or whatever the case is. He's running for his life every goddamn game. Um, but he's one of the most electric quarterbacks um, in the NFL. I've seen that he wanted to go to the Cowboys, but we'll talk about that in a minute. That's not realistic, and that's not going to happen. Um, but the Bears, the Chicago Bears are an interesting um, potential team to land Russell Wilson. It'd be interesting interesting to see what they have to give up for him. Uh, but, you know, the Chicago Bears, they haven't had a quarterback really since Jim McMahon. I mean, the last time I think they made the Super Bowl and they lost to the Indianapolis Colts, I think Rex Grossman was the uh, quarterback. And <laughs> I guarantee you, you didn't wake up this morning thinking you were going to listen to a podcast and hear Rex Grossman's name mentioned. Uh, but he was pretty good. He played well for the University of Florida. I got to give him credit. Uh, got him to the Super Bowl. Ultimately, they lost to uh, Peyton Manning. I think that was Peyton Manning's first Super Bowl win. Um, but if Russell Wilson goes to the bears, that could change a whole lot of stuff, but that division is tough. Minnesota, they're a pretty good up and coming team. Um, and then you've always got to deal with Aaron Rodgers and the green Bay Packers up there in uh, Lambeau and, in, in uh, green Bay, Wisconsin. So it'll be interesting to see, but that might be one of the best divisions in football. If they land Russell Wilson, um, in Chicago. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, and like I mentioned with Russell Wilson and one of his preferred, uh, alleged destinations was the Dallas Cowboys, but that's, uh, that's no longer going to be feasible as the Cowboys, um, signed Dak Prescott, man, Dak Prescott secured the long-term bag for sure. Uh, four years, 160 sheets. Um, he got the biggest signing bonus in NFL history, $66 million. Um, just crazy because he really hasn't done much. I mean, they've, they've had decent years, but I don't know what he's done, but you're, I guess in the NFL now you've got to pay what the quarterback's going rate is. Um, if you want to, if you want a franchise quarterback, the problem is, I don't know if Dak Prescott's a franchise quarterback, um, because I, I just don't see it. It doesn't pass the eye test for me, but maybe he'll prove me wrong. Um, hopefully for him, but fuck, what does he care? He just got $160 million. I want to say it's 120 some 120 plus million guaranteed. So, you know, whatever happens, he's, he's set for life on that. And I've seen people crediting Jerry Jones. People are saying Jerry Jones is kind of insinuating. There's a big TV contract coming for the NFL and the salary cap's going to go up. And that's another thing. The salary cap hasn't even been finalized yet to my knowledge for the NFL. So some of these teams are kind of holding off, um, a little bit, um, especially with the NFL draft coming up and, and things like that. So there's a lot of movement that's going to be coming in a couple of weeks, but Dak Prescott gets his deal. The Cowboys get their quarterback and like Jerry Jones, again, what's he done in the last 20 years? Don't worry. I'll wait. Nothing. Exactly. He's done nothing. 
he's he's the guy that wants to be the the head honcho. He wants to be the celebrity. It reminds me a lot of um, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but the guy Jerry Krause, who was the uh, GM, I believe, of the Chicago Bulls whenever uh, Michael Jordan was there in that Last Dance documentary where he basically was like trying to get all the credit. He wanted to be the celebrity. He wanted people to credit him with putting those championship teams together. And that's what Jerry Jones is. He wants to be the uh, general manager, which he is. He wants to be the owner, which he is. Uh, but he also wants to be like the most important person on the team. He really has no idea what he's doing in terms of football operations. He's a, you know, oil uh, billionaire, um, you know, great businessman in, in terms of that. I think he bought the Dallas Cowboys for $140 million um, when he purchased them. I think it was in the 80s. And now they're worth, you know, over a couple billion. Um, unbelievable businessman. But when it comes to football mind, he just doesn't have it. Um, they've done exactly nothing since 1995 um, of significance. Um, and, and let me ask you something. What owner in the NFL, I don't think there are any other than uh, Jerry Jones, but what owner in the NFL, owner, not GM, not coach, not quarterback, not running back, you know, not assistant coach, whatever the case is, not water boy, not equipment manager, the owner of the team, one of the most valuable franchises in sports, has a weekly radio show with a uh, sports talk radio show in Dallas, Fort Worth. What owner's doing that? What owner has time for that? What owner fucking cares? Jerry Jones cares. He cares about his image. He cares about him being the man. He cares about him being the front, the face of the franchise. He's he's more worried about him being the face of the franchise than the players. He's you know he just goes off of what the logo is worth, and his teams usually are trash, and they have been the last twenty years. And there's nothing you can tell me that says that I'm wrong on that. Look at the facts. Look at the standings. Look at the stats. Look at the Super Bowl appearances. Look at the playoff wins. There aren't very many of them. So, it's just incredible. I would never see Art Rooney. And Art Rooney's not the best owner in the world, um, but I wouldn't see you know him him having a radio show here in Pittsburgh on you know the lo- the local sports station. Like that makes no sense to me. So I think that's one of the big problems with the Dallas Cowboys. But hey, Cowboys fans, you can keep uh, giving Jerry Jones credit. Do what all you got to do. But at the end of the day, you're still going to be sitting nine and seven, eight and eight, somewhere in there, and you're going to be light years away from the Super Bowl as always. But I'm sure whenever the NFL draft happens and free agency happens, we'll be sitting here t- uh, listening to ESPN, listening to Stephen A. Smith and those guys, and Skip Bayless, who we'll talk about here in a second. Um, talk about how how about them Cowboys? They're going to be so great, and they'll start out four and zero, and then they'll lose six straight, and they'll be right back in the basement where they're always at. And Jerry Jones will be out next year doing the same stuff, rinse and repeat. Um, so swig a beer for my, my, uh, disdain for Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL, because I mean, they've won nothing. They're the Toronto Maple Leafs of the NFL. Uh, I know the Maple Leafs have won before, but they haven't won anything since 1967. So swig a beer for that. And I did mention Skip Bayless. Um, if you don't know who Skip Bayless is, he is a, uh, shock jock radio host. He paid his dues though. He, he went up through the beats. Uh, he worked on the beat of the San Francisco 49ers. I believe whenever, uh, T.O. was there with Steve Young and Jerry Rice, he also worked on the beat of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm reporting on them in the nineties. We just talked about the Cowboys, but actually back when they were good and they had a decent team, when they had Michael Irvin, they had Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith and Deion Sanders, and they were a dynasty in the early to mid nineties. Um, he was on the beat there. So he paid his dues, give him credit. Um, but he just signed a deal with Fox sports for $8 million a year, um, for four years. So 32 million over four years. There's so much hate for him online. People can't stand skip Bayless. And I understand it. 
Um, but I actually enjoy his show um, with Shannon Sharp. I really like Shannon Sharp. I know Skip Bayless, like I said, he's a shock jock. He's up there saying LeBron James stinks and um, it gets ratings and it gets the job done and he's making money. So like, it's not a big deal. Um, I don't see why everybody's so mad that he's making $8 million a year. I guess it, the ratings must warrant that. Um, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of these shows and maybe that's a, a good thing. Um, or it would be a good thing if there weren't these types of shows, as I said before in this episode, like there's so many debate shows on now. Like there's nothing with sports highlights. It's everybody's opinion. One of the funniest things my buddy Troy uh, told me a couple of years back um, was like on sports center. I don't know if they still do. Again, I don't watch it, but they used to have a segment called the Coors light shout out the Coors light, the Coors light, cold, hard facts. And then the Coors Light cold hard facts were five opinions from whoever they had there, whether it be Herm Edwards or Mark Schlereth or whoever the case is. So that was hilarious. But they have shows like that. But there wouldn't be shows like that if it wasn't for Skip Bayless. And these people are out there, the same people that are bashing him, the same people that are upset that he's getting all this money. And he was rumored to potentially come back to ESPN to reunite with Stephen A. Smith, but elected to stay at Fox Sports with Shannon Sharp and get a little bit more money. They wouldn't have jobs where they're at. They wouldn't be on TV every day. They wouldn't be debating. Nobody would give a shit about their opinion if it wasn't wasn't for a guy that was innovative like Skip Bayless and really started these debate shows. So I don't want to sound like I'm defending Skip Bayless because I understand the hate for him, um, like in terms of like some of his rhetoric and like his takes and everything. But you can't knock the guy's hustle and knock what he's done uh, for sports, you know, talks and and all that stuff. And and uh, one thing I, I thought was awesome too is Pat McAfee. Um, he mentioned that. He's excited that uh, Skip Bayless got this amount of money. And any big-time radio host and any big-time um, sports media and any aspiring sports media or, or media in general, anybody that's aspiring to do that should be happy because you, you should want the guys that are ahead of you to get as most money as possible because then it opens doors for you and you'll be able to earn more. Like um, McAfee was saying, hey, I, I, he didn't really take a, a shot at Skip Bayless, but he basically, it was like a subtle dig where he said, you know, his show... Um, as far as numbers and analytics go, his his show actually does a little bit more uh, in terms of you know people watching and mentions on Twitter and interactions and things like that on social media than Skip Bayless does. So he was fired up that Skip Bayless got eight million dollars, and you could understand why uh, eight million eight million dollars a year, I should say, and you could understand why because Pat McAfee's probably like fucking rights, dude. Like I, I'm I'd love to get more than that. So again, shout out to Skip Bayless. I mean. You can't really hate hate the guy for his hustle. You can hate his rhetoric. You can disagree with him. You can think he's an idiot on th- some things he says. I mean, he does get up there and he he calls players uh, names. He used to call Chris Bosh uh, the the forward for the um, Miami Heat and the Toronto Raptors and a couple other teams who who played with LeBron and D Wade down in South Beach um, during their couple years where they were a dynasty there. He used to call him um, Bosh Spice because he was soft. Um, so he does stuff like that. A lot of personal attacks, but that's just part of his gimmick. Um, so you, you, I don't, I don't understand how people hate him so bad, but, uh, you know, shout out to Skip Bayless, man, more power to him. Switching over to the world of pro wrestling this past week may have been, in my opinion, the worst week for an already puttering professional wrestling industry. I mentioned last week on the podcast that Shaquille O'Neal made his, uh, wrestling debut in all elite wrestling on TNT. Uh, he was in a mixed tag team match, which a mixed tag team match means a, uh, a male and a female versus a male and a female. And he was in a match with, uh, he was teaming with Jade Cargill, who I guess on TV, at least in terms of the script and everything going on, is a friend of his um, against Cody Rhodes, who Cody Rhodes is one of the um, executive vice presidents of All Elite Wrestling and is the son of legend uh, Dusty Rhodes. 
and Red Velvet. So whoever Red Velvet is, just some random uh, female wrestler. I'm not really familiar with her work. Um, and I mentioned that he went through a table in a great spot and took a huge bump uh, from a, a tackle off the ring apron uh, through the tables from Cody Rhodes. It was super impressive. Um, and they're selling it. They're doing what they do for the show. You know, they're they're making it look like it really hurt. And that's called selling and wrestling, um, for those who don't know. And the doctors bring out a gurney, okay? So my neighbor's uh, brother actually is really close friends with the doctor of AEW. So I'm going to have to check with him on this and, and, and kind of see what really happened here because this is insane to me. Um, they picked Shaq up. They strapped him on the gurney. And they wheeled him to the side of the arena where an ambulance was waiting. Okay, so it's a huge bump. It's part of the show, right? They're trying to play it up and say, you know, Shaq's really hurt. Um, he's going to go in the ambulance. Understandable. Makes sense, right? He's selling the injury. So, you know, all is well and good there for me. But when they get to the ambulance, they wheel him into the ambulance. You know, they put him in there and they blare the siren and everything for the effect. And and then after a couple minutes goes by, or I guess like probably like 20, 30 seconds goes by, um, I guess the TV cameras must have cut away. I didn't watch the match on TV. I couldn't possibly watch this on TV. Um, it's just not my kind of thing um, in terms of how outlawish and how just, you know, bullshit and mud show type wrestling it is on this show for me. Um, but luckily it's 2021. So everybody and their mother has a camera in the stands. Now, AEW, they're down in Florida. They're in Jacksonville, I believe. So they're allowed to have fans in the uh, stands. And they actually are in Jacksonville because the booker of this show, Tony Khan, He's the son of, I believe, Shad Khan is his name, and he owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. So it all ties together. Uh, but he's putting on big shows with his dad's money and everything like that. So he's a complete mark. Um, but so that, like, like I said, luckily there's somebody in the crowd had a camera. So they're filming everything, and they're they're probably like maybe 40, 50 yards away from where this ambulance is. So you can tell when the TV camera's cut off because the production guy comes up and he taps the side of the uh, ambulance. Sure as shit, I'm not joking. As soon as they do that, the TV cameras, like I said, they must have cut away. So they're no longer on TV on TNT. The back door of the ambulance opens and Shaquille O'Neal walks out and then runs back to the back. So like right in the plain view of the fans, the fans can see him. The guy's videoing it. You can see it online. It's unbelievable how ridiculously poor booking this is and how lazy this is. At least don't insult me and don't slap me in the face and make me like believe this match. Not that it's real. You know what I'm saying though. You like buy into the match and holy shit, that was a nice bump by Shaq. Maybe he's really hurt. Blah blah blah. blah. You're trying to sell it as a serious match, and I know it might sound stupid for me to say that because everybody knows it's predetermined. But at the end of the day, it's just the same as a movie. You want it to be realistic enough that you believe that it could happen. In my opinion, so it, it made all the sense in the world to me that they sold it and they took him to the ambulance and but. They just rang the siren. They took the TV cameras off, and they just let him out. They couldn't just drive him around the goddamn block behind the building so the fans couldn't see him and then let him out. They had to slap everybody in the face. They had to complete piss all over the wrestling business and basically just tell Shaq, hey, good job, bud. Like He went through a table, couldn't walk. They put him on a gurney, a stretcher. They wheeled him. He looked like he was unconscious. They're like checking his vitals and everything like that and selling it, doing a great job with all that. Then the TV cameras cut away, and they don't have the wherewithal and the smarts and the brains to drive the goddamn ambulance around the corner. They just let him out right there in front of all the fans. The fans were cheering. That's how much of a jabroni fan base this is. The fans were cheering. I mean, fans back in the day would have been booing and throwing shit. That's a joke. And that would have been an absolute uh, you know, black cloud over the business because I know everybody knows it's not real. But like I said, you got to at least suspend disbelief and be like, don't insult me. 
I just watched this entire match. Luckily, it wasn't on pay-per-view because, fuck, man, people would have been lighting the seats on fire in that place if they were legitimate fans and, and paid money um, to, to see that. Unbelievable. Um, and then this past weekend, too. So after that, that was on Wednesday night. After that, so this past Sunday, they had a pay-per-view, um, All Elite Wrestling uh, Revolution, I think is the pay-per-view's name. I, again, I'm not paying $50 to watch this trash. So they teased the whole time. Like I said last episode, they signed Paul White, who is formerly known as The Big Show um, in WWE. They signed him, and then they came out and they teased that there was going to be another signing, um, a huge Hall of Fame-level signing, one of the best wrestlers of all time. So immediately, a lot of fans think CM Punk. Uh, they think Kurt Angle, the guy who won a gold medal with a broken freaking neck, uh, pride of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Mount Lebanon. Um, they, you know, they think guys like that. And this no knock on this guy that came back, but at the pay-per-view, Christian, yes, the lesser half of the tag team, Edge and Christian, decent wrestler. Uh, he's a good technician, but I'm talking about as a star. He's, he wasn't really over as a single star in WWE. He might have been over in TNA or some other you know low-level jabroni promotions. Um, but they signed him. So this is a, mind you, this is a young startup company. They're trying to promote young talent, new talent. All they're doing is going up and buying a bunch of old time wrestlers. They're buying up old WWF guys. They've got sting from WCW who does nothing. He's just 50 years old and stands there with his face painted in a black bat and does nothing. Um, they've got Taz, they've got Chris Jericho is 50 pounds overweight, um, 10 years past his prime. They've got big show. Like I mentioned in Paul White, he's old, he's 49 years old. Now they signed Christian. There's a couple other guys, but Christian's 47 years old. So I don't know why they're bringing in all these old timers. Um, but at the pay-per-view was crazy. They had a match where a guy did a hurricane run on the uh, apron. Now, if you don't know what a hurricane run is, it's basically like a, a Spanish style move, like a Rey Mysterio would do, or Chavo Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, those types of uh, wrestlers. Rest in peace to Eddie Guerrero, by the way. Um, they basically jump and they put their legs around your neck and then they like do a backflip basically with you. They like clinch their legs and do a backflip and it's supposed to like springboard you over top, like kind of on your back or springboard you into an object. Um, so hopefully that was a decent description. It's a little bit easier to see visually. Um, but the guy did this to another guy. I have no idea who these wrestlers are, so don't you know? Don't fault me if I don't know their names. They're really probably not worth it to know their names. But the guy did a Hurricane Rana on the apron, okay? So he fell, he botched it completely. There's a lot of botches on these shows because a lot of these guys haven't had formal training. They've literally been wrestling in their backyard for 10 years or wrestling in gyms, slamming each other with real uh, barbed wire bats and all kind of stuff. So they don't have a lot of training, but this guy completely botched the hurricane Rana. Okay. He tries to do it, but he falls off the guy and he lands on the floor. But the guy that was supposed to take the hurricane Rana, he doesn't know anything better. So what he does, instead of just like jumping down on the floor and, and punching the guy and like kind of just go into a different spot and improvising like a true wrestler would do, he goes and he just like looks around for a second. And then he just heaves himself 10 feet across the ring apron and smack like like a dart, like a fucking dart flying. He goes and nails his head off the ring post and then goes down. And the fans are fucking like, holy shit, holy shit. Like, they're just complete jackasses that think this is legitimate at all. It's crazy to me that anybody watches this, but that was just an absolute gong show. It's, it's almost funny. Like, just sit back on Wednesday night, turn on TNT. I think it's on at 8 o'clock. Crack you a cold Coors Light and just prepare to laugh your ass off at just how abysmal this wrestling is. Um, I got to have my buddy Ray back on. He's a fan of this wrestling, and it'd be interesting to see how you know what his reaction is to my take and have a little bit of a debate on that. But I, I, I just, I don't, I think it's just, 
you know, it's not defendable, any of this type of wrestling, but just crazy about that. And then the last thing I'll say about AEW was in the same pay-per-view, they had uh, John Moxley, who used to wrestle in WWE as uh, Dean Ambrose, um, who's like kind of like a, a wannabe fake-ass Stone Cold Steve Austin to me. I mean, he's, he, he pretends to be a badass, uh, and he looks, he has great promos, but he's always just like hiding in the shadows somewhere and doing some dark uh, promo and stuff, but they're usually good, but his wrestling just doesn't back it up for me against uh, Kenny Omega. Who's a big international star. He came over here, you know, doesn't really do anything for me. A uh, decent wrestler, but he's, he's very polarizing. People either love him or hate him. This AEW crowd tends to love him and think he's the best wrestler of all time. Um, he's already in like Dave Meltzer's wrestling hall of fame. Uh, I talked about the wrestling observer awards on the last episode, but just unbelievable uh, how much these guys love these these types of wrestlers. But they had what was called, and I mentioned these matches are outlaw. These matches are mud show. These matches are like fairground type matches. They had what's called an explosion barbed wire death match, I believe. So like there's this big ass like plate on the ground, like a big ass like piece of cardboard it looked like to me. And again, I didn't watch the match. I just caught clips. But it had barbed wire all over it. And I don't know if the object of the match was to slam your opponent on it and it was going to blow up and then you win or whatever the case is. But that just sounds stupid. It sounds phony. It's hokey. It's bullshit. Um, but I guess John Moxley slammed Kenny Omega onto this fucking barbed wire box that was supposed to explode. And the explosion was a complete dud. A complete dud. Um, hilarious to see. And the announcers obviously sold it like it was a nuclear bomb. They, they, they were like, oh my God. And they're going on and on and on. Just incredible. I have no idea. I have no idea how anybody enjoys this show. Again, like I said, there's never been less people watching wrestling than there are today. I think this show averages like 937,000 fans each week. And they brag about it like it's some huge accomplishment because most of their fans are between ages of 18 and 49 and they win the demographic or whatever the case is. But it's an absolute joke. It's a stupid-ass show. And... Just just crazy. So I, I had to talk about that because that was just laughable to me. Um, just an absolute gong show. Um, I want to touch on some gambling bruise picks because I'm back this week. I'm back and I've got some fucking wins. I, I got them up my sleeve and I, and I want you to ride this uh, wave out with me again. Like I said, we're a third period team and the puck's about to drop in the third period. And we're coming back with a big week. So let me grab a sip of beer real quick before we get into these picks. So we're one and two to start. Um, from the last uh, two episodes ago, I should say, I didn't have any picks last week and no picks on Twitter. I just didn't like anything this week, uh, Thursday, the day the podcast comes out, I've got the Washington Capitals money line against the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, again, that means for them to just win straight up. Uh, they got to win the game outright. Doesn't matter. It could be overtime shootout regulation. Doesn't matter. So Thursday night Capitals money line over the Philadelphia Flyers. Saturday, I've got the Pittsburgh Penguins puck line over the Buffalo Sabres. We've talked about how bad Buffalo is. I mentioned Jack Eichel's out long-term now. Um, They've got no answers in Buffalo, and the Penguins need to beat up on these bottom feeder teams, and the Penguins are playing well, as we've discussed. So Saturday, I've got the Penguins puck line, which means they've got to win by, it's minus one and a half, so they've got to win by two. So I've got the Penguins to win by at least two. And remember, in hockey, uh, when teams are down one, if it's close, they usually pull the goaltender. That happened this past Tuesday against the Rangers for the Penguins. And Sidney Crosby banged home a shot from center ice, and, and, and they won four to two. So it's it's likely to happen. Um, and Sunday, I've got Toronto puck line. Again, they got to win by two over the Ottawa Senators. Um, Ottawa really has nothing. Um, and Toronto is just rolling. They're a buzzsaw right now. So the three picks, like I said, the Capitals money line against the Flyers. The Penguins puck line against the Buffalo Sabres Saturday. 
and uh, Sunday, the Toronto puck line against the Ottawa Senators. Um, and that Caps game I talked about was Thursday night again. So um, hammer those picks. Let's ride this thing out. And uh, let's have a great time. Put some money in our pocket. What do you say? And continuing with the uh, tradition we started over the last couple of episodes, I really enjoy this. And I think some of the listeners enjoy it too. I've had people reach out to me with different uh, you know, tidbits and things like that that I could mention. And, and um, I want to talk about some historical moments that have happened in sports this past week. Um, so um, on March 7th, 1992, Kevin Stevens became the first NHL player to record 100 points in an NHL season and 200 plus penalty minutes. I think he had 254 pims that year. Um, unbelievable. And that season too, like there were nine guys to score a hundred points. It's a little bit different than how hockey is today. I think the very next year, 92, 93, uh, there were 21 guys actually that scored over a hundred points. So scoring was crazy in the early nineties and in the eighties. Um, but unbelievable that Kevin Stevens became the first player to have a hundred points in a season. He played with Mario Lemieux. He was absolutely lights out. Great winger, um, in 254 penalty minutes. Um, for those who don't know about Kevin Stevens, he has a pretty remarkable story. Um, it's sad. It's it's um, amazing at the same time. Again, like I said, he was an outstanding hockey player. Great guy. Um, Artie is his nickname as he's known here, known in the league, known in Pittsburgh. Um, but in 1992-93, so the year after that uh, milestone I just mentioned, the Penguins were playing in the um, playoffs against the New York Islanders. And it was Game 7, and it was the, the year the Islanders upset the Penguins and arguably the biggest upset in NHL history. Um, and that game seven, Kevin Stevens threw a hit on, um, Islanders defenseman, rich, uh, pylon or pylon. I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I hope for his sake, it's not pylon. That's a tough name for an NHL defenseman. Uh, but on the hit, the visor for pylon, or I'll use pylon in this case, the visor for pylon came back and hit Kevin Stevens right in the face and it hit him in the face with so much force that it knocked him out cold. And he fell to the ice face first. It's hard to even describe this. It's just horrific. He fell to the ice face first with no way to brace himself because he was knocked out cold. And it was an incredibly gruesome injury. I mean, it's tough to watch it. In the building, I remember people saying, like, you could hear a thud of him hitting the ice. Like, it's disgusting. Um, You feel so bad for Kevin Stevens. It shattered every bone in his face, I believe. He had some pretty horrific surgery. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of what they had to do, but basically it took hundreds of stitches to stitch his face back together after they were able to surgically repair some of the bones that were broken. Um, And he, he came back. He never played. Obviously, the Penguins lost that game, but he came back the next year, had a decent year, and then he got traded. He moved on and played for some other teams, but he was never really the same player again. And uh, he ran into some some unfortunate substance abuse issues and and uh, went down a very, very uh, upsetting path and, you know, for a while there. And there's a great documentary on this. It's called Shattered. You can look it up on YouTube. I think Sportsnet in Canada put it out. Um, they did a nice story on it about this incident I just mentioned as far as him hitting the ice with his face when he was knocked out cold. Um, and the struggles after with substance abuse and um, some arrests and things like that and getting in trouble with the league and, and how Mario Lemieux, another reason why he's one of the best guys in all of sports and all the world. Um, and the Pittsburgh Penguins came to help uh, Kevin Stevens. They picked him up. They got him the help he needed. They took him to rehab, things like that. Um, and he credits them with essentially saving his life. Um, it's a very, very heartwarming story. Um, it, it, it's gut-wrenching, too, at the same time. It's sad. It's It's amazing. It's triumphant. Um, it's a great watch. I would definitely check it out for sure. Again, it's called shattered. You can YouTube it. It's shattered. Uh, Kevin Stevens Sportsnet uh, put it out in Canada. Um, the big, uh, company up there with Rogers, um, communications. 
and it's an unbelievable story. So I just wanted to point that out that he had those great stats and also to mention his story. Now I believe he's a motivational speaker and he works a little bit for scouting with the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he talks to youth and he talks to uh, people that have had drug problems and things like that to help them know that they can get through it. Um, they can overcome any obstacles, things like that. So uh, swig a beer for Kevin Stevens for you know the tough times he went through, but turning his life around. And, uh, you know, it's awesome, man. It's awesome to see Artie back in Pittsburgh. He's doing well. And uh, Mario Lemieux, what a guy. The last um, note I had in terms of historical um, sports things that happened this past week. Uh, 30 years ago this week, the directors of the Baseball Hall of Fame voted 12-0 to to bar Pete Rose from ever being inducted into the Hall of Fame due to past gambling on baseball while he played and managed, um, both with the Cincinnati Reds, I believe. Um, Pete Rose was a 17-time All-Star, a three-time World Series champion. He had a 303 batting average, 4,256 hits, and 1,413 RBIs. Um, just an incredible career, Argu- arguably one of the best baseball players of all time and certainly one of the best hitters of all time. Um, to me, the Baseball Hall of Fame is ridiculous anyway because they don't have the best player in Major League Baseball history in there because of alleged steroid use. And I don't know if there's bias against him or people that vote that don't like him. But Barry Bonds isn't in the Hall of Fame. So at that point, your Hall of Fame is just a sham to me. And that's no knock on the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. I'm not personally attacking any of them. They all deserve it. But there's guys in there that don't have the resume that Bonds has. Bonds is the best baseball player. I don't think anybody can tell me anything different of all time. Um you know, I, I don't I don't follow baseball all that much, but I know a lot about it. And I know that Barry Bonds was unbelievable, I, especially in like the, the 90s. I think it was the 90s, late 90s, whenever he was uh, or maybe it was the early 2000s when he was um, chasing Hank Aaron's home run record. And just that whole time in baseball was electric to watch. Unbelievable. Um, and as far as Pete Rose, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame ever since he took that tombstone from Kane in the um, chicken suit that he wore at WrestleMania 1999. He came out in the chicken suit. I think he was at WrestleMania a couple years prior to like he. He did a couple of run-ins there and just an unbelievable guy. I mean, he's in the WWE Hall of Fame and he deserves to be in the, the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame. So maybe uh, once some of these older voters, you know, are no longer on the uh, on the committee and, and on the board, um, they'll, they'll get some younger guys in there and get some people that kind of understand that, okay, he's paid his dues, he's served his time. You know, he wasn't really – I've always been told he was gambling on his team to win. Um, so – We'll see what happens. I'm holding out hope for Pete Rose. I think he deserves to be in the in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Any baseball purist out there can tweet me or text me or talk to me, whatever the case is, and, and give me any rebuttal, and I'd be happy to have anybody on to talk about it. Uh, but I think he deserves to be in, as does Barry Bonds and a number of other guys that are being held out right now. It's just crazy how some of these Hall of Fames in sports um, just don't have the best players in for a variety of just crazy reasons to me. Um, one final note I wanted to mention, uh, next week I'm going to bring the movie review segment back. Uh, I'm going to watch the next edition of Iron Man, Iron Man 2. Um, I'm planning on watching all the uh, Marvel movies. I'm really excited, and I want to see if you know what I've been missing out on because I was harsh on them. I always hated them. I always thought they were stupid. I would never want to watch them. And like you heard a couple episodes ago, I really enjoyed Iron Man 1. My wife and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and we've been planning on watching uh, you know most of the movies you know pretty soon here. So we're going to start by watching Iron Man 2. Um, and I'll have a review on it next week and, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And on that note, I hope you have a hell of a weekend. I hope the beers are flowing till Monday morning. Follow rambling brews on Twitter and follow rambling brews podcast on Instagram. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here. Well, it was all 
that I could do to keep from crying. Wailing Jennings And you don't have to call me Charlie Price And you don't have to call me Merle Haggard anymore In your phone book And I've seen it On signs Where I played But the only time I know I'll hear David Allen call Is when Jesus Has his final Judgment day named Steve Goodman wrote that song and he told me it was the perfect country and western song I wrote him back a letter and I told him it was not the perfect country and western song because he hadn't said anything at all about mama or trains or trucks or prisons or getting drunk well he sat down and wrote another verse to the song and he sent it to me and after reading it, I realized that my friend had written the perfect country and western song, and I felt obliged to include it on this album. The last verse goes like this here. Well, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. And I went to pick her up in the rain. 
fishing in the pickle truck. She got. 